There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest criminal case. Between 1982 and 1983, the bodies of three young men who had been strangled, bitten, and stabbed were discovered in the U.S. from Maine to Nebraska. For the police, it was difficult to pursue any direction without even the slightest clue. Residents were terrified. Everyone believed that a serial killer was lurking in the vicinity. But just as the investigation had reached a dead end, it would only take a single coincidence to catch the killer. With an IQ of 123, a remarkable intellect, a promising military career, outstanding organizational skills, and the discipline worthy of a true Boy Scout, John Jaber nevertheless remained a mystery. The police soon came to understand that anger and hatred had motivated his killing spree right from the very beginning. Here is the story of John Jaber, the Boy Scout killer. Lawrence, Massachusetts, 1968. In the dining room, Beverly Jouer was packing up the last of her things. Already wrapped in the newspaper were her plates, coffee and tea services, cutlery, tablecloths and soup bowls. Climbing onto a chair, she removed the portraits of the Pope and the late President Kennedy, assassinated in 1963 from the wall. That was also the year of the birth for her son, who had arrived two months later. For that reason, she and other expectant mothers named their babies John or Joanne in honor of the deceased president. The only Irish Catholic to have ever become president of the United States of America and who was taken too soon, much too soon, she sighed. Beverly Jaber had just received her divorce papers. She didn't dare touch them, almost as if what was inside might burn her. Yet, she was the one who decided that things had to stop. A short time earlier, she had become aware of her husband's infidelities when she came to help him out at their restaurant called Gritty Mill, where people tasted Italian pizza for the first time. Lately, he didn't even try to hide his behavior and once even grabbed the buttocks and kissed a young blonde woman right on the mouth after she had been winking at him from the table. Beverly refrained from creating a scandal because that was how she had been raised. Soon, he had earned quite a reputation as a violent stalker who wouldn't hesitate to keep pursuing women after they had turned him down. At home, he raised his hands on her once and then never again, at least not without asking for forgiveness. For her, his legal wife and someone who believed that the vows they had exchanged on their wedding day had no expiry date. But this was just too much humiliation. The priest had always lectured a spouse should only ask for divorce in the most extreme cases. But father, I'm an extreme case. 
You must forgive him this offense, my child. Our Lord asks us to forgive just as he forgave those who crucified him. She had almost given in, but then changed her mind. She could no longer live with the father of her child, not after what he had done. Father looked at her with disappointment and quickly reminded her that from then on she would only be permitted to have a civil marriage performed in an office and could no longer be married in church. Well, that was fine with her. Beverly, the ex-Mrs. Hubert, had no intention of remarrying anyway. Behind the wheel of her Dodge with two children seated in the back, she left Massachusetts behind with all its gossip. It's well-meaning to gooders who were always on the lookout for anyone who fell out of line and its malicious, prejudiced Irish community who always stood by the father. She decided to leave right in broad daylight, preceded by the moving vans. She knew that everyone was watching her from behind their windows, the woman who threw her husband out of the house without even trying to work things out. This wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last. Everyone did, at one time or another. Her own sister said it herself, just to downplay the infidelity. She too had been deceived, but in order to keep up appearances and to remain in the church and to continue to receive her husband's paycheck, she preferred to close her eyes. In time, things would settle down, and thankfully they did. Beverly, why do you always have to make waves? Her mother harshly scolded her on the telephone. Unlike other women in her circle, Beverly had a job, and an interesting one too for that time. She was an accountant and earned a monthly salary, which means she was not financially dependent on her husband. That was unheard of. To brighten the already somber atmosphere, the ex-Mrs. Hubert decided to put on a little music. In the rearview mirror, she could see the pouty faces of Johnny Six and Jane Four join the hip. They already missed their father. After the deceit and humiliation, the shock of the court papers and the division of assets, she was ready to leave with her suitcases and never look back. Yet other feelings surfaced that would not subside. Bitterness, jealousy, and the feeling that the children were now being used as bargaining chip that belonged to just one parent. Beverly decided that this was how it had to be from now on, and even if they begged her on bended knees, neither John nor Jane would ever see their father again even if it meant that she would have to play both roles in the future like many mothers before she had already done. Beverly thought once again about the death of President Kennedy and the tremendous overwhelming national grief that ensued. She recalled that she and her two sisters had gone to light a candle at the chapel and to pray for the soul of the deceased. Her mother was all dressed in black just like widow Jackie Kennedy. Tears rolled down her cheeks, which she quickly wiped away with a white handkerchief. One John went, another John arrived. Two months later, during a heat wave, she delivered her firstborn, a little boy who was the size of a premature baby. As she got lost in her memories, Beverly Hubert quickly glanced in the rearview mirror. Her son's dark stare met her eyes with defiance that she had never seen before. What was wrong with this kid, she thought. Why is he giving me these looks? When is daddy coming to see us? Asked little Jane as she yawned. Daddy left with a nasty woman and doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. He's not coming back because that's what he wants. From now on, it's just going to be the three of us. Don't you think that'll be fun, kids? You're lying. John's icy stare in the rearview mirror terrified his mother for a moment. From then on, she knew that things would never be like the way they were before. John Hubera came into the world on July 2nd, 1963 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. At the time, his father, Joseph, had distant French origins. He was working as a cook and a waiter in a small restaurant that he had purchased from an Italian family. His mother, Beverly Cassidy, 
who was Irish, worked as an accountant in a small car insurance company. His only sister, Jane, was born in 1965. John lived in a stable home where the Catholic faith prevailed. At three years old, he already knew how to read, which made him a child prodigy. During the first years of his life, the family had a comfortable social standing. His father was able to expand his restaurant in the small town of Gritty Mill. Business was good and the customers were steady, which allowed the couple to take vacations and to save a bit of money as well. John attended the parochial school at the church and was appointed an altar boy for Sunday Mass, a responsibility which he took very seriously. But at the age of six, the idyllic world in which he had always lived suddenly came crashing down following his parents' divorce. John had been very attached to his father and couldn't accept the idea of living so far away from him. However, he was not the only one who suffered from the situation. The person who was most affected in this case was his mother. Although she was in favor of a separation after her husband's many adulterous affairs, she had now started to deeply regret her decision. It's important to remember that these were the 1960s and divorce was not yet common. Furthermore, being macho was practically a second nature for most men. A woman who chose to divorce as Bradley Hubert did was turning her back on the entire community, sacred institutions, and civilized society. The father immediately disappeared from the lives of his two children, and for a long time they were not even sure where he lived. Beverly Hubert had never really forgiven her husband for his many infidelities, and she would exact her revenge in the cruelest of ways. She would keep him from seeing Johnny and Jane. In those days, shared custody was not widely practiced in society and couples' roles were predetermined, so it was not unusual for a mother to do as she did. Consequently, mother and children left their home in Massachusetts to move further north in the state of Maine in New England. The single-parent family rented a small apartment in a working-class, rundown area of Portland. Since she lost her job as an accountant, as a result of her move, Beverly was forced to work here and there as a waitress or even a cashier in a supermarket. Even though her ex-husband continued to send her child support payments, she made them live extremely frugally. For example, John walked to school every day, which was right at the edge of the town because his mother flatly refused to give him any money to take public transportation. The relationship between the mother and the son gradually started to deteriorate as soon as they moved to Maine. Beverly then became a possessive woman who was overbearing and authoritarian. Her children were not allowed to go out or to make friends with children their own age. She deprived them of any kind of entertainment, and they were even forbidden to attend any festivities to mark the end of the school year. She gave the excuse that she didn't have enough money to pay for their outfits or for them to have anything to eat or drink. The void left by their father's absence took a toll on John and his sister. John tried several times to secretly take the bus to go to Massachusetts to try and find him. The trauma was so intense that he started to imagine him walking down the street at a supermarket or even visiting him during the night to read him a story as he did before. One day, John stole a few dollars from an iron box that his mother had hidden underneath one of the kitchen shelves. He left home and headed straight for the bus station to buy a ticket. He was shocked to see his mother come out from nowhere grab him by the shirt collar and drag him into the car. Presumably, someone from the neighborhood warned her when she saw her son lurking around by himself at the station. He was later beaten for stealing money that didn't belong to him and also for breaking the rules that she had set down. With each day that passed, the hatred that the young John felt for one who had given him life only seemed to grow. He was convinced that she alone was responsible for the family falling apart. In 1970, Beverly Hubert found a new job in an office 
and had to travel between Portland and Boston. This was the period when John and his sister began spending more and more time with babysitters. The presence of these young girls, who were often still in high school and without any real qualifications, except for the desire to keep making some pocket money by keeping one eye on the TV and the other on the children, greatly fascinated the small boy. Strangely, none of them ever set foot in the Hubert home again after their first visit. Did they misbehave? No, ma'am. Did they disobey you? No, not really. Did they refuse to go to bed early? It would not be until the sixth babysitter, a girl named Trixie Davenport, that the truth would come to light about the hasty departures of the previous nannies. Mrs. Beverly, I'm sorry to have to tell you about this, but Johnny has some behavior that is kind of, kind of, how do I say this without upsetting you? He tried to strangle me. Yet, John really liked Trixie. She knew how to make really fluffy pancakes and burgers with lots of fries. She was blonde and wore tight-skinned bodysuits. At eight years old, he felt some very strange, contradictory feelings for her. He fantasized about kissing her, killing and then eating her. Trixie, who was still unaware of his macabre ideas, played with him with his little cars and airplanes. It was only during a game of hide-and-seek that he sprang out of his hiding place and grabbed her by the neck by surprise, still thinking that this was a child's game. The young nanny left him to continue as she laughed, but soon realized that he was taking things further. It was only after a fierce struggle to break free from John's ruthless grip that she understood that it was absolutely not mere child's play. Despite the mishap with Trixie, Beverly was in total denial. She knew that her son did often as he pleased, that he was sometimes very aggressive, but thought that he would go so far as to kill someone never crossed her mind, not even for a second. She was convinced that the nanny had exaggerated the facts, probably as a way of downplaying her lack of authority over the children. The experience with the babysitter would stop there. In 1976, when he was 13 years old, John discovered his first strings of emotion. He had spent his childhood fantasizing about nannies and almost enjoying terrorizing them, but now he found himself in the grip of a major problem. He was not attracted to girls at all. His homosexuality frightened him and upset him a great deal. He dared not speak to anyone about, not even the school psychiatrist, for a fear that she would repeat it all to his mother. On more than one occasion, he surprised himself by checking out other naked boys in the dressing room after gym class. The emerging virility of his classmates, as well as the more developed masculinity of the members of the baseball team, left him shaken up so much that at night, when he was alone in bed, he still thought about them. On top of that, he had his own complexes about his body. While most of the other boys at the school were big, blonde, athletic, and energetic, he was small, puny, and had the pathetic look of a beaten dog. Since his discomfort was so obvious, he was subjugated to bullying and harassment, and no one ever lifted a finger to defend him. Nevertheless, he was an extremely intelligent boy with an IQ of 123, which was significantly higher than average and helped him earn excellent grades in many subjects. It also earned him the title head of the class and teacher's pet, which was surely not the best of accolades for him. As a loner without any real friends, John filled his world with characters from the books that he constantly read. Illustrated novels and science magazines were a genuine revelation. To earn some pocket money, he also started to work as a paper boy and delivered newspapers in his neighborhood on weekends and school holidays. He saved money and even managed to partially pay for his tuition at Chavira's High School, a Catholic secondary school for boys, while his mother agreed to pay for the rest. The arrival of Brian Labeck, a French-Canadian in his class, changed all his preconceived ideas about alienation. 
the two teenage boys became inseparable, united by their personal misery. Like him, Brian had also taken his parents' divorce very badly. Like him, he had an unattractive physique. He was obese and wore huge glasses. Soon, the other boys started calling them pussies. John was nicknamed Jehubi, while Brian got the name Barbecue. At home, things were not going any better. John detested his mother more and more and showed it openly. As payback, she tormented him, humiliated him, scolded him for anything and everything, and never hesitated to belittle him at every opportunity. Humiliated and rejected both at school and at home, John was slowly turning into a ticking time bomb. And then he had a breakthrough. The Boy Scouts. It is important to note that scouting is a real institution in the United States. It is almost like a rite of passage for girls and boys. In an almost military tradition, it teaches resourcefulness and skills for getting out of difficult situations while in extreme conditions. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. John adored his green uniform, his red basque beret topped with an eagle's feather. The Boy Scouts of Maine, managed by the Association for American Youth, almost became like a second home for him, a substitute home where for the first time he felt useful and valued. During summer vacation, John and his squad camped in the green Northwood Forest. The nights spent under the stars, toasting marshmallows and telling each other scary stories were among the most treasured memories of this time in his youth. John was so passionate about scouting that he eventually rose through the ranks and became an Eagle Scout the highest level that could be achieved. When his summer vacation was about to come to an end, he regretfully packed up his gear and his boots to go back to school. The year 1979 was a crucial one for him since it was the one that would determine whether the student would go on to a brilliant university education or simply graduate with a technical diploma. Despite his exceptional intelligence, John was becoming increasingly disinterested in school. He had always been hardworking and fearful of his teachers, but now he had started cutting classes and displaying violent and antisocial behaviors. Neither expulsion nor any other punishment was able to tame him. Yet, despite all that, he still managed to earn his high school diploma with distinction. He registered at the University of Norwich, a semi-private military-type institution in Vermont, where he planned to study engineering. But the program proved to be difficult even for someone as brilliant as he had always been, and eventually he dropped out at the end of the first semester. Without resources, abandoned by his mother, who refused to give him any financial support after the crushing failure and was unable to find a job that matched his ambitions, he decided to enlist in the United States Army. and the U.S. Air Force, he could at least be sure of being fed, housed, and having his clothes laundered. There was even a chance for him to rise through the ranks. 
With his experience as a former Boy Scout, he had no problem getting used to the rigor of the barracks where he had found himself at the age of 19. But it was the same thing all over again. John found himself surrounded by men in harsh, overcrowded and intimate conditions. In the dorms, the showers, the training room, and dining hall, John constantly collided and crossed paths with dark-haired men, blondes, and men of color. His homosexual inclinations came back in full force, and once again he found himself on the prowl in the communal showers, secretly looking when the others had their backs turned. He was aware that in the army, this kind of conduct, although prohibited, enjoyed a kind of code of silence. The famous don't ask, don't tell. For some men, their homosexuality was carefully concealed and left behind closed doors so as not to risk it being leaked outside the barracks or squealed to their respective parents. It was during his leave at the end of the year that John went to Massachusetts with the old hope of finding his father. For three days, he roamed the alleyways of the town of Lawrence where he grew up, convinced that he would come eye to eye with his parent at the end of an alley, but there was no trace of the senior Hubert. Maybe he moved somewhere else to a nearby city, maybe even another state. John leafed through the phone book in search of anyone named Hubert in the United States, but there was no sign of his father Joseph. The depression and despondency that had marked his childhood and adolescence began to resurface once again. It was his mother who betrayed him. Like an old film that played at before his eyes, he recalled the image of their leaving their family home. The moving truck filled with their old furniture, the serious faces of the neighbors as they watched him leave like pariahs, his mother had managed to alienate everyone, including her own family and even Father Gavin, who was usually so forgiving with his parishioners. She had an uncanny knack for ruining everything. He even thought that she did it on purpose. John spent the next few nights getting drunk in the city's seedy bars. His soldier's uniform gave him a certain flair that commanded respect, and for the first time, he felt all-powerful. But neither alcohol nor drug addiction, which he later developed, was able to calm his inner rage. He needed something else. On December 28, 1979, Sarah Conti, a little nine-year-old girl, was playing in front of her house when someone sped by and stuck a pencil in her back. Although the little girl's screams alerted her parents, her aggressor had already disappeared. Hidden behind a wall, John was smiling from year to year. He could still hear the child's screams of pain resonating in her ears, and they made him sexually aroused. In January 1980, Wiki Goff, a 27-year-old woman, was walking along Tour Avenue to go to the University of Maine, where she was a student. That was the moment the young man chose to sneak up behind her and almost slashed her throat with a razor blade while trying to keep her from crying out and alerting anyone. Finally, he fled as he saw people heading their direction. Wiki Goff had to undergo two operations but was unable to describe the face of her attacker to the police. The case was dismissed and John Hubert took more and more pleasure in hunting people and watching their blood as it gushed. In March 1980, in the little town of Back Cove, Maine, Michael Whitham 9 was the latest victim of another attack. The little boy was strolling peacefully on Baxter Boulevard when he was literally picked up by an unknown person. Michael was then dragged off to a wooded area not far from the neighborhood of Oakdale. There, the stranger asked him a series of increasingly bizarre and incoherent questions before grabbing him from behind and slashing his throat with a hunting knife. Michael miraculously escaped death, but still his wounds required 12 stitches. Although a search was launched after the third attack of this kind, no suspects would be arrested. Nevertheless, these knife and razor blade attacks shocked many of the residents. 
so much from then on, there was not a day that the teaching and administrative staff of the local school did not warn children not to walk home alone after class. In April 1980, a student from the University of Maine was stabbed in the stomach with a knife as he was crossing the street. During his convalescence, he was able to provide a description of his attacker. Subsequently, a suspect was arrested but then released when the police discovered that he had an alibi. In the meantime, John Hubert, who was sent to off at Air Force Base in Nebraska, where he entered a radar technician training program. Bellevue was like a kind of resort town with about 22,000 residents at that time and during one of the rare occasions that he was on leave. John Hubert went there alone hoping to find a man in search of a one-night stand. He was also able to join the local Boy Scout troop as a result of his former rank of Eagle Scout and his extensive experience in the field. After this latest mission and taking advantage of his external regime in 1982, John went home to his mother in Portland and moved into his childhood room for an unspecified period. That was when his descent into crime truly began. On August 22, 1982, Richard Stetson, a playful, friendly, red-headed 11-year-old boy, went running to the park close to his family house. After night fell, he had not yet returned. His very worried parents called 911. The little boy's body was found the next day on August 23, 1982, by a motorist who had stopped upon seeing a strange figure at the side of the road. The autopsy revealed that Richard had been stabbed to death. He was wearing only a t-shirt which indicated that the attacker had unsuccessfully tried to rape him. Nevertheless, he left a sizable bite mark on his left thigh. The location where his body was found did not leave any clues about the murderer. Without a shred of solid evidence to work with, the police investigation remained a standstill. A year later, a suspect was arrested then released and the case, although still open, no longer generated the attention that it had at the beginning. A month later, Danny Joe Eberly, a young paperboy, was seen for the last time while he was delivering newspapers in his neighborhood in Bellevue, Nebraska. Danny was 13 years old and was murdered on September 18, 1983. His parents contacted the authorities when Danny's school called to tell them that the boy hadn't been in class. His remains were found two days later in a plot of land just outside the town. His killer tied him up, gagged him up with a tape before stabbing him several times with a knife. It was quite likely that he was molested. However, his autopsy revealed that he had not been sexually assaulted. A week later, a neighborhood resident found Danny's bag still filled with newspapers and his bike tossed into a dump. They were kept as evidence exhibits. As a result of media pressure that connected Danny's murder to that of Richard in Maine, Nebraska police called on FBI profiler Robert Ressler to help them in the investigation. With several years of experience working for the federal police, Robert Ressler had started to develop an interest in the new phenomenon of serial killers. His initial findings indicated that the bodies found at the side of the road and in a lot proved that the assassin had to be someone of a small stature, which prevented him from carrying the bodies very far to hide them better. It was precisely his lack of concealment that also raised a red flag for the FBI agent who was quite certain that the killer was an amateur with deviant behavior who was probably a pedophile and a necrophile. The investigation was still in progress when a new corpse was discovered. This time, it was Christopher Walden, 12, whose lifeless body was found by hunters in a grove on December 2, 1983. Christopher Walden had his throat slit before being completely drained of blood. Three days after the discovery of the third victim, the investigators found new items at the crime scene. Cords with complex knots probably learned by someone in the military or anyone who received training of this kind and had already been camping outdoors. The cords were also sent for analysis at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. 
The analysis revealed that the cord was made up of about 100 different fibers, an unusual kind of cord rarely seen in local shops. Robert Ressler was convinced that whoever had committed these murders was one and the same person. In his profiling report, he outlined the killer's traits with the additional information that the killer must have surely worked in an environment where he had access to young boys, probably as a coach, a camp counselor, or a Boy Scout leader, since he knew how to tie some extremely complicated knots. The material data sheets of every Boy Scout in the area were thoroughly examined. Some people were even questioned, but to no avail. However, the next few days, there was a succession of eyewitness testimonies. At least three people had seen Christopher Walden for the last time before he died. They recalled that he had been accompanied by a young man who was probably around 18 to 25 years old and not much bigger than Christopher with dark eyes and hair. Robert Ressler quickly took note and with this information and an initial composite sketch was made. A fourth witness report came from a Bellevue resident who was out on that day taking his dog for a walk. He reported that Christopher had been kidnapped by a man driving a beige car. According to this same person, the license plate of the car started with the letter R. The police began to go over all the different sources of the license plate starting with that letter of the alphabet. There was a Raleigh in North Carolina, Riverside, California, Richmond, Virginia, Rockford, Illinois, Rochester, Minnesota, and the list went on and on and on. Various car dealerships provided a list of old beige-colored car models that had been manufactured but they yielded no results. Rest for time, the police gathered all the witness reports that could potentially give them additional information. Yet, in early January 1984, the investigation into Christopher's murder was only just starting out. But soon an incident would dramatically alter the course of the events. On January 11, 1984, Barbara Weaver, a kindergarten teacher at the elementary school in Maine, was seated at her desk to prepare her students' report cards when she noticed from the classroom window a man seated behind the wheel of his car. This was not the first time that the teacher had seen the vehicle and it was all the more suspicious because it didn't belong to any of the teachers or of any parents of the students. Involuntarily, Barbara's gaze met that of the car's driver. For a moment, she felt a shiver and had a bad feeling. Without giving it too much thought, she grabbed a pen and wrote down the number of the license plate on a piece of paper. When she looked up, she noticed that the car was still there, but the man had disappeared. At that moment, the classroom door flung open loudly. Standing before Barbara Weaver was a small man who stood no more than 1.6 meters with a black hair and brown eyes. He looked puny and was young, probably not more than 20 years old. He took out a hunting knife from his pocket, and without taking his eyes off her, he began threatening her if she ever decided to open her mouth and report him. Barbara then understood that he was probably on the run and that he was trying to evade the police. Fearing that he might go through with his threats, the teacher managed to escape and run to a nearby house from which she eventually called the police. Within a day, police from Nebraska and Maine received much desired answers to their questions and doubts. Christopher Walden's killer had been caught by a teacher and eventually confessed to his crimes. Robert Ressler took the first flight to New England and arrived in the evening at the airport in Bangor. Now he would have to interrogate the killer in order to have a clear conscience. In the interrogation room, Ressler was initially struck by the killer's immature and almost gentle nature. There is still something almost childlike in his gaze at the same time. Something troubling and secretive. Throughout the whole interrogation, John Hubert seemed to be incredibly calm, cooperative, and even cheerful at times. The FBI agent, who had seen countless deranged people throughout his career, was both frightened and fascinated by the person sitting in front of him, whose legs were so short that they barely touched the ground, just like an eight-year-old child. 
John Hubert confessed to the murders of Richard Stetson and Danny Joe Urberly. He gave details about the circumstances in which the first two boys had been kidnapped before being killed. He also admitted to have been attracted to their corpses, but did not try to have a necrophilic relation with them. He explained that the bite mark found on little Richard's tie had been made well after his death. Jeff Davis, the assistant to the Portland sheriff, recalled, When he was arrested, he didn't try to deny anything. In fact, he collaborated with us with a disconcerting ease for a killer of this kind. To borrow his expression, he emptied his bag. He was also very intelligent, almost an overachiever. John Hubert emptied his bag chronologically, encouraged by the two police officers who wanted to get him to speak further. He described his unhappy childhood, the breakdown of his parents' marriage, the years of hardship and deprivation in Portland, and the maternal tyranny, the sexual frustrations, the painfully broken bond with his father, the humiliation at school, the years at the barracks, and his desire for men. Last but not least, he declared himself an apostate of the Catholic Church, which in his opinion had been the source of all the misfortunes that had befallen his family. The only exception is Father Gavin, a good Irish priest who often helped my mother. If you should see him one day, tell him that Johnny asks for his forgiveness. He added in a small voice. When one of the detectives then asked him if he would ever kill again, if the opportunity presented itself, John Hubert answered unflinchingly, I really do fear that indeed would happen. In February 1984, John Hubert was sent to psychiatric experts who declared that he had suffered from a compulsive behavioral disorder accompanied by sadistic and schizoid tendencies. His trial began in March of that same year, where he pleaded guilty to the two murder charges of Christopher Walden and Danny Joe Eberly. He retracted himself twice and recanned his words before once more confessing his guilt. He appeared before a panel of three judges who upheld the death penalty against him, which was death by electrocution. In 1990, he was found guilty of first-degree murder in the case of Richard Stetson. John Hubert appealed the decision shortly thereafter. However, he made a most unusual statement when he publicly asked for forgiveness from the parents of his victims and the people that he had attacked in the 1970s in Portland. To all of the people that have hurt in one way or another, I ask you for your forgiveness. Please forgive me for the wrong I have done to you. During his appeal, he declared that the electric chair was a cruel and unusual punishment that went against human dignity. His appeals for clemency reached the Supreme Court of the United States, but were all rejected. John Hubert remained on death row for 12 years in complete solitary confinement. He spent his long period reading various legal texts to understand the workings of the law. He also read works by Ernest Hemingway, Albert Camus, The Stranger, and Theses by Sigmund Freud. He also developed quite a talent for drawing and made several sketches where crime and bloodied bodies were his main subjects. Shortly before his execution, he declared that he was a changed man who wanted to settle down and lead a normal life. Occasionally, he received visits from prison visitors, but twice he sent away a chaplain who wanted to hear his confession. In 1994, John Hubert spoke for the first time about his alleged marriage plans with a woman who lived in Ireland who had been corresponding with him for a year and whom he described as being the first and real true love. His plans never materialized. He died on the electric chair on 17 July 1992 at 7 in the morning at the penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska, a few days after his 31st birthday. His last meal was a chicken burger and a cherry Coke. He refused the traditional last cigarette and the blessings from the prison chaplain. John Hubert had never married and had no children. His mother Beverly and his young sister Jane had never visited him the entire time he was incarcerated. The assistant to Sheriff Davis had this to say. No matter what he said and what he promised before he died, it would never take away the horror that his victims suffered and the horror that their parents would have to go through for the rest of their lives. 
John Hubert never stood out from the people he used to hang out with and with whom he used to live. For the most part, he was just a little nerdy kid who was very inconspicuous and had few friends. The Boy Scout that he worked with had always described him as someone who was responsible, kind, and whom they could count on at any time. Except that there was a complex and impenetrable gray area between the person that he really was and the person he allowed the world to see. The motive for his crimes would never truly come to light because he himself was very careful to leave it shrouded in mystery. Federal agents Robert Ressler wrote a book detailing his experience as a profiler and his meeting with Hubert and other criminals like him. The book brought together several testimonies from various police officers, coroners, and conversations with the killers themselves. It is considered a Bible for all those who are fans of criminal cases. It is entitled, Whoever Fights Monsters, My 20 Years Tracking Serial Killers for the FBI. Robert Ressler inspired the role of Agent Bill Tench in the TV series Mindhunter. In the United States, those sentenced to death are entitled to a special dispensation that allows them to use several means to put off or postpone their dates set for their execution, which often explains the extended periods on death row. Someone remained there for more than 15 years or some die long before their execution. Suicides are also common. In some prisons, those sentenced to capital punishment may also get married and consummate the relationship according to conditions set by the court. Often these romances start with correspondence during an inmate's incarceration, but rarely do they ever lead to anything really serious. In addition to first-degree murder, premeditated rape, hijacking of a plane, and large-scale drug trafficking are offenses that are eligible for capital punishment in the United States of America. Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, Colorado, and Mississippi are still at the top of the list of states with the highest national rates of execution by lethal injection. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 